Welcome to AmiSites, a podcast that offers you access to thought leaders who can help you expand your entrepreneurial toolbox. Learn from seasoned entrepreneurs who have already walked in your shoes and can help you with your day-to-day business decisions. With your host, Ami Kassar. Ami is the founder and CEO of Multifunding, an advisory company that helps you grow and stay in control of your business. Hello and welcome. My name is Ami Kassar, founder and CEO of Multifunding. Since 2010, Multifunding has helped businesses achieve their biggest growth goals through creative and personalized funding solutions, all while working with hundreds of lenders across the nation. Joining us today is Dave Nast. Dave is the CEO and managing partner of Nast Partners. He's a three times CEO with over 30 years of experience using proven analytics, systems, and strategies. Dave partners with his clients and delivers his services based on their unique needs. I mean, topics today will focus on how HR changed through the pandemic, how hiring has changed, and how we build teams virtually. Welcome, Dave. Welcome. Thank you, Ami. Tell me everything, Dave. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, it was an interesting year last year. Uh, You know, once we got through... March, April, May, uh, I I would say we were in triage mode. Uh, A lot of companies were looking at what to do. Some had to unfortunately let people go. Uh, Most everybody had to switch to a virtual environment. So you have a bunch of managers that have never managed people remotely before. And then we kind of got into recovery, I'd say during the summer where people were starting to deal with it a little bit better. And we had a lot of managers that had their people and they didn't know what they needed. Some were thriving in the remote work environment. Others were struggling. Productivity, by and large, actually did not take a hit, uh, which surprised a lot of business owners. I think you have a lot of traditional business owners who believed everything must be done in person. And I think they were a little bit surprised, but that's not the case. We had a lot of our clients lean into it. We had some that actually gave up their real estate. They negotiated their way out of their lease or they didn't renew their lease and they've, they're, they're planning to stick to a remote working environment from now on and they saw quite a bit of cost savings in doing so. And the other ones that did struggle, uh, and you know, it went also segment by segment. Uh, by and large, with what we saw with our clients, the manufacturing clients actually did pretty well. They had to adhere to new restrictions. Oh, we can't have 100 people on the floor. We can only have 50 things like that. But what they did to adjust is they elongated their hours, which, you know, messed up a lot of workers because they were used to getting up at six and getting to work by eight. And now they were like, I'm working when to when now? Four to midnight? So that kind of stuff happened, but that kept the business alive and helped them avoid layoffs, which was good. And we also saw a fair amount of what I would call strategic hiring, uh, especially on the outset of the pandemic and the lockdown and all the things that happened there. And by strategic, I mean, we had a lot of folks uh, who did their performance reviews at the end of 2019. And, you know, they had a team of 50 people and six of them were really kind of on the chopping block. But, you know, money was flowing. Times were good. Maybe they'll turn it around and they didn't let them go. And then the pandemic hit and they let them go. Uh, And then they actually a lot of their competitors overreacted there were some benefits that were actually given uh, in the beginning of the pandemic that if you laid off 25% of your staff by March 31st, uh, those people got elongated benefits and companies also got some benefits as well. So a lot of people did that and overreacted. So the 
some of our clients that were really future focused, they started snapping up the top performers at some of their competitors to replace the mediocre or not so good performers that they let go. And here we are now in January, and those companies are not just surviving, they're thriving. And with strategic hiring, I think the selection process has never been more important. Uh, when money's flowing in like crazy, I think a lot of companies were just like, yeah, well, let's just put them in there and see if they sink or swim. And there's an, a pretty big investment involved with turnover. Turnover is quite expensive. You look at all kinds of different turnover data and stuff, and I've seen things that say it can be as much as 300% of the person's salary when they leave, especially for the senior executives. Maybe at the lower level, it's down around 40%. But, you know, 40% of a $25,000 entry-level employee, that's still $10,000. And if you do that, like we have a client that's a call center, and, you know, their turnover is 50%, and they have 800 employees. So if you take 400 times 10 grand, that adds up over time. So if you can avoid that and be more strategic and make sure you're hiring the right people, that is a huge advantage in business, not just in cost savings, but time savings. If it's a manufacturing environment, quality control, because if you're always training new people on the line, stuff breaks, things don't go as well, the line slows down, that's a huge hit to the bottom line. So if you can retain that institutional knowledge and keep your people happy, during times such as these, uh, that's a huge advantage. And not only that, it's a competitive advantage. People talk. Rock stars refer rock stars. People know. So when people would leave their competitors, like well, this happened to one of our clients, by the way. They were very strategic. They hired away a top salesperson from another manufacturer to their uh, company back in April. And it was a, considered a huge coup, a huge win. And what's happened since he's been there is He's been calling his buddies and saying, you got to come over here. It's awesome. And they've ended up picking up like five or six more great people in the last year, and they're killing it. So I think when you talk about being strategic in your hiring, I don't think it's ever been more important than it is now. And everybody's doing more with less. There's been a lot of redistribution of work that's gone on. You know, I used to do this, and then I have to pick up – Sarah's stuff and Fred's stuff now because those jobs have been moved around and all these other things. So when you start doing that, this is what we help with. We actually use analytics. We will actually say, okay, who's hardwired to do this work? And we will run a system of analytics to figure that out for them. And then they can look within their ranks and go, okay, if you're going to redistribute work, who's hardwired to do this work well? And when I say well, I don't mean just do a good job with it. They'll enjoy it. They, they're, they like that work. They're, they lean towards that style of work. So, for instance, I am not a detail-oriented person. You don't want to give me, you know, the books. You can ask Christine, my business partner and wife, about that. I'm not the one you want in charge of those things. I'm not the one you want filling out the 172-page RFP because I'll do it wrong for things like that. So if we know what people are hardwired for and we assign them those tasks and duties, if you have to break out something because you're doing more with less, and maybe some jobs went away, you can assign people the right tasks, set them up for success, get them up to speed faster. That's another thing. You know, when people learn new stuff, if you know, they're struggling with it, it's going to take a longer ramp-up time. One of the things that we measure is how long it takes for people to get up to speed. And what we have found by and large across all of our clients, and we work with clients that are enterprise size, we work with mom-and-pop shops, everybody in between. We're industry agnostic. 
You know, we work with professional services firms, management firms, you know, you name it. What we have found is when you assign new tasks to people and they're going to get up to speed, the company, when we ask them and we kind of do our needs analysis, they say, oh, how long does it take someone to get up to speed in this role? They always give you a number that's like half of what it really is because we'll measure it. And they can say, oh, it takes three months for someone to get up fully to speed. And then we measure it and go, did you know it's seven and a half? Really? Yeah, because they're still going to their manager at month six for this. They're still relying on other people for that. They're not working a full, whatever it is, number of hours of work week doing this because they're still learning and getting trained and time off the line or whatever it could be. So they always get that wrong. No matter what position it is, they always think people get up to speed faster than they do. And that's dollars and cents. So like our mission is to help our, all of our clients realize an improvement in their bottom line. And we use analytics for that. So this past year, we've needed to be flexible. Companies have needed to be flexible. You know, when times are good, you can hide a lot of sins with a lot of revenue. And when times get leaner, uh, and I used to be an outplacement consultant, so I was, I was actually working with CEOs that were in transition during the Great Recession back in 2008. Um, so when times get tough, I think having analytics and having some kind of objective data is helpful. It's emotional when you have to displace people. Nobody does that lightly. At least I would like to believe that nobody does that lightly. The clients we work with, we're usually working with the C-suite. They take it very seriously when they're like, oh, we've got to let you know, Fred go. That's hard for them. So when you're redistributing work and you're doing more with less and times are lean, right person, right seat has never been more important. We've yeah. actually had people opportunistically leave because they're like, yeah, I didn't really like this job before. I really don't like it now. And they started looking. And yeah, times were tough, but they found some roles. So if you go back to 2008, there were um, eight people for every one job that was open. So it was a difficult time. So, and, it, and employers knew that. It was an employer's market. They'd, they'd make candidates jump through six hoops before they hired them and all this other stuff and because they could. Uh, right before the pandemic, we were at 0.72 people for every job. So in other words, there were more jobs available than people. Well, we're sitting around 2.5 right now. So the pendulum has, you know, it's going back and forth a little bit, but times have changed a little bit. But really good people, they've learned over the years that their network matters. They've stayed in touch with people. So they're pretty savvy nowadays. They've got tools at their, at their disposal. People finally learned how to use LinkedIn. It took about 20 years. And they use that now. So they'll stay in touch with their friends and competitors, and they know where to go, where people, you know, where it's at, where a really good company is, and they'll leave. So we've, that's still a, an issue with some of our clients is when it's not just turnover is bad because it's expensive. Sometimes they lose really good people. So Dave, help us, uh, a, help us yeah. understand, like, what, what do you do? Like, what is this analytics stuff? Like, how do you help people make better hiring decisions? Oh, thank you. Yeah, there, well, there's a couple different products that we use. So one of them is called the predictive index. And with that comes a benchmarking tool. So we can kind of establish what it takes to be successful in a given role. So we have stakeholders that will actually take this assessment to determine what it takes to be successful in the role. And then we can measure people up against a different assessment and line them up. So we look for fits and gaps. And, if, and by the way, there's always gaps. There's, I think I've done 17,000 of these in my day. 
I think there's less than I can count on one hand how many people were perfect matches for the job. So there's always going to be gaps. So the point of it is, though, is that a gap we can live with? So the way that the predictive index works in particular, I would ask that you picture an iceberg. And the stuff we see on the surface is observable behavior. There's a ton of things that measure observable behavior. Uh, analytics measure the stuff under the water that we can't see. It measures what drives the behavior, and that's very different. So, for instance, we all have drives. Those drives create needs. The response to the needs is the behavior that we see. If you're living on that side of the equation, the behavior that we see, that's the tip of the iceberg. So it means you're guessing at the drives and the needs. PI, predictive index, measures the drives. Once we have the drives, we can predict the needs, and then we can predict the behavior from that. So that's really helpful. So silly example, I have a drive to survive. It creates a need for me to get food. The behavior that you see is I go to Starbucks and I get a sandwich. Is everybody in Starbucks for a sandwich? No. Some people will actually go for the coffee or the Wi-Fi or to socialize back when they let us do those things. With that, everybody's capable of stretching and everybody's capable of masquerading. Masquerading and stretching are the same thing. The only difference is awareness. With stretching comes awareness. I'm here and I'm trying to get there. Those two plot points have been identified. Well, if I know what drives someone's behavior, I can help them stretch successfully in a way that's comfortable and satisfying for them. So on the warm and fuzzy side, it's a better place to work. On the cold, hard cash side, the business is getting the results that it needs, and that employee is now worth more because they're capable of making that stretch. So with the benchmarking tool combined with the assessment of the individual, we look for those fits and gaps. So if I know what drives someone's behavior, I can help them close that gap. And you want to do this throughout the entire organization. You want to map the entire company's genome, if you will, with all the positions. And I say that tongue-in-cheek in a way. So back when I was a headhunter, uh, back in the 90s, I placed 17 of the doctors that mapped the human genome. And that was a really cool project to be a part of. And I remember being on the phone with one of the doctors one night, and I'm like, so why is this project getting so much press? And he said, it's not about curing disease. It's about preventing it. So if you take the time to determine what's needed for success in every single role in your company, you've set up the genetic markers so you can avoid problems when they come. And not only does it help you put right person, right seat, you can do a succession plan. You can plan for the future. If you're going to sell your company at some date, you can go to a potential buyer and say, hey, here's the workforce analytics. Here's what it takes to be successful in every role of the company. Here's the data on our people. If you do experience turnover after the transaction, which we know happens, this tool will help you replace them with the right people faster. It takes some of the risk out of it for the buyer. And then on the buy side, you can actually uh, design a leadership team or a department as far as what you want in a complete vacuum, having never met anyone. Then during due diligence, you can give it to the people on the other side of the table and then look at this and go, hey, is this something we can live with? And you can determine, hey, who's a good fit for our culture and what's going to work here? Who are we going to bring to headquarters? Who may not survive this, this merger and acquisition? All those things to make it a little bit more strategic before you write the check. So that's how we like to use PI. And then we have another tool called Perception Predict, which actually is cutting edge. It uses artificial intelligence to help determine success in a different role in a different way. So what they will do, they'll come in and do what's called a forensic fingerprint. 
they have this they 402 facets for what it takes to be successful in a given role. They're going to measure your existing people, maybe against industry benchmarks as well. Look for what it takes to be successful because, you know, what a successful salesperson is, for instance, in the auto industry is not the same as what it is to be a successful pharmaceutical sales rep. So they'll do it for that company, customized. That's why they call it a fingerprint. Then you can give the assessment to uh, candidates, if you will. And not only will it tell you, you know, if they're going to succeed, it's going to tell you what they're going to do. It'll tell you how quickly they get up to speed. It'll tell you how many calls they'll make, how many appointments they'll set, uh, how many deals they'll close, what that revenue number looks like. And it's machine learning because it's artificial intelligence. So over time, it gets more accurate because it keeps taking in more and more data. So they will recalibrate this thing a couple times a year. So you know, one of the big, big clients that have been using Perception Predict is actually Mercedes-Benz. I think they've had it for three or four years. They got their turnover from 70% down to 10%. They got their productivity to increase like 600% in that time. Because when you hire the right people and set them up for success, and get rid of the people that are not set up for success. It's a huge thing. Like even if you replace some low performers with mediocre performers, that's an exponential increase in bottom line profit. So if you can just go one step further and go, hey, let's just hire nothing but A players, that's great. And then Perception Predict will also tell you which of your B players can become A players. So for instance, some people need a little bit of training It'll tell you which ones need it, and there are some people that don't. They don't need the training. So you can save some time and investment in those folks and just kind of you know, ride the wave with them, if you will. It'll also tell you, like, who are your lone wolf performers, and what do you do with those people? Typically, you leave them alone because, okay, they're producing, and they're out on an island, they're weird, but okay, we, we tolerate them. Maybe that's the case, but in some different environments and different roles in different companies, maybe you don't want the lone wolf. Maybe that's not actually good for the brand. So it'll help you determine things like that. So that's a deeper dive. Perception Predict is usually aimed at the larger companies. The more data they get, the more accurate it's going to be. So we look for sales forces, customer service reps, call center people of teams of like 100 or more for something like that. And let's, go, they, let's, let's go back to PI. How, how big do you have to be to use PI? Our smallest client has two employees. Mm -hmm. uh, they are a husband and wife team and they're growing their, their company and they're like, we can't afford to make a, a mistake in a hire because, you know, the next person we hire is going to be one third of our workforce. So now their intention, they're growing out to six. They've got a really cool product that they're growing out. It's an online thing for marketing and they're growing it out with developers and designers and a couple other, and also a finance person. Did so they, they don't do want to make a mistake. Did they do PI in each other before they got married? Um, they were married when we met them, but b being married to my business partner, we actually learned PI at another company. So Christine and I actually had each other's PIs like two months after we started dating. I will tell you it was helpful. <laughs> we have a report in the software called the Relationship Guide. So you can take any two people, throw them into a blender, and it will spit out the relationship strengths, cautions, and tips. Uh, now, we laughed at our strengths and cautions because we were pretty familiar with them. But we did get value out of the tips. So to me, the strengths and the cautions are the what, and then the tips were the so what. PI is really big on that. They'll give you a lot of data, which is the what, and then they'll tell you how to use it, which is the so what. And one of our tips, for instance, was never leave a meeting without clearly defined next steps, which we do a lot. I think we did it 
on Monday. I think I said, you were going to call that guy, right? She's like, I thought you were going to. So that kind of stuff will happen over time. But yeah, so PI, most of our clients, I'd say, are usually between like 50 and 500 employees. We have several that are over 1,000, and we have several that are under 50. I think we have like two dozen clients that are under 50 employees. But so, yeah, it can work in any industry. It's not a PI is not a, a large investment either. So it's based on size of company. It's a subscription based model. So it's all inclusive and unlimited use. So if you're growing your company, you can, you know, use it like crazy. Like one of our smaller clients has 12 employees, but they're hiring like three sales reps. They put an ad on the internet and got 3000 responses. Well, you could give all 3000 of them PI if you want. It costs the same if you, if you give them three or 3000. So that helps them grow and use the tool to their advantage because with 3,000 people, speaking as somebody who used to be a recruiter, that's a huge investment in time. Just looking at the resumes is. So what these folks did is they, they looked at the resumes, got it down to like 100 that were acceptable. They're like, this is too many. So then they made it part of their hiring process. They sent them PI, narrowed it down to 20, did 20 phone screens, use the interview guide provided by the PI software on the phone screen. So they'll take the person, measure them up to the job target that's been established, and it will give you competency-based interview questions. So you'll ask better questions. Competency-based interview questions are experiential. Tell me about a time when, describe a situation when. You learn how they think. You learn how they solve problems. It's more of a conversation. And from that 20, they narrowed it down to three people to bring in for the next round interview. And uh, from there, they were able to hire the best people. So you can use it to save yourself some time because 3,000 people, oi, that's a lot for a company of 12 people. Yeah, that's a big deal. So, Dave, I'm sitting here. I want you to tell me if you think I'm crazy or not. I'm sitting here now, brand spanking new office, physical office that we just got, made a size bigger and uh, signed a five-year lease on my nuts. Oh, you know, it depends, though. So the nature of the business is what happens. So we have a, a software company that we're working with up in Rhode Island. Everything's done in pods and in teams. So you have a designer, a developer, and a project manager, and there's nine pods. They have to be together because they got to bounce ideas off of another. They have to, like, you know, basically throw code over to each other and say, what do you think of this? And what if we did that? Would an interface work with that? So it's very interactive. They need to be in person. Manufacturing needs to be in person. So it depends. Now, we work with a client that's a freight company, and they manage international freight. They can do that from anywhere because, really, it's, it's emails, it's reports, it's things. So when they gave up their lease, they were in upstate New York. When they gave up their lease, like there was one guy who's like, I've always wanted to live in South Carolina, and he moved. And it's like, wow, were we holding you back? From? And he's like, yeah, you kind of were. So it um, depends on the industry. It depends on what's needed. So if you have a very interactive team, that bounces a lot of things off one another, and they really need each other for that. Having office space is probably a really good idea. We work with a small consulting firm out in Bluebell, and they basically provide accounting software solutions for their clients, but they do it in project teams. So they're a small company. There's you know 12 employees. They only have three to four people in the office at a time. But those three to four people really value that. And they actually, they asked them, hey, do you folks want us to give up the office? Because we could. And they said, please don't. Some people don't want to come into the office. They actually have one person who work for them who's a bigger germaphobe than I am. And they don't want to come into the office. So they're just waiting this out. Uh, and that's fine too. So they've been flexible in that regard. So if you have teams that work together, 
that need each other, I think office space is not a bad idea. And if you need a place to meet your clients when times are different. So for instance, a lot of businesses have been doing everything over Zoom and it's going okay, but it's not as effective. So for instance, when I go to sell, usually people want to see me. It's a decent amount of an investment. We're going to work with you. We make, Christine and I, as the business owners, we make ourselves available to our clients you know, all the time for, what, for whatever they need. High touch, white glove service. I can sell over Zoom. I did it all year last year. I'm much more effective in person. And when I say that, like I may go speak to a CEO peer advisory group and there might be 15 members in the group. In the olden days, I would do that. I'd leave with four appointments. And now I'm not selling from the front of the room, by the way, because I'm not allowed to. I'm just kind of presenting their data in the team session and that sort of thing. But I'll get four people that call me and say, hey, I, this is pretty cool. I could use it. I'll get four appointments and I'll close two of them. And what's happened during the pandemic is I'll speak to a peer advisory group online and I'll get two phone calls and I'll close one of them. So I'm more effective in person. And maybe that's a personal belief. Maybe it's a self-limiting belief. I don't know. Because we did find this last year. Uh, I was actually uh, very pleasantly surprised by all that. But there are some industries where being in person helps. And uh, when I used to do retained executive search, and I placed over 500 CEOs in that time, you, you had to meet everybody in person. It was actually in our contract, by the way. So the, the, the client expected us to meet every candidate in person because they want to know, does this person have three heads? Can they communicate? Are they, you know, are they funny looking? Do they fidget? You know, they want to know all that stuff, especially when you're hiring a CEO-level person for your company. So we had to meet them in person. So we had to have a place to meet them in person. Oftentimes I would go to them, but I tried to get to bring them to me as much as possible. So if you need to meet clients and see them there, if you need to have team meetings, brainstorming sessions, bounce things off, I think that's good. One of the problems I found with Zoom, we did a bunch of sessions for a bunch of our clients uh, back in the spring just to kind of help them. We called it um, leading through change, I think is what we called it. It's just something we put together for them because they had the data. I'm like, well, let's do a team session to see how everyone's doing. What we found on that is, yeah, it was great, it was effective, and 80% of the people really got a lot out of it. 20% hid. You know, they turn off the camera, they kind of start checking something else, they're eating their lunch, and they're like, what do you think, Fred? Yeah. And then they turn it off again, you know, so people can hide on Zoom. And some people are actually hardwired to hide. So if we know their behavioral drives, like for me, I'm not going to hide. I talk a lot, as you probably haven't guessed. But there are other people who prefer not to talk a lot. And therefore, they're the ones who want to hide. So for instance, um, we work with a bank and their leadership team, half of the people are hardwired like me, just throw an idea out and they'll talk all afternoon. The other half of the people are hardwired differently. Um, they need time to think it through. That's how they process things. So what we advised them was, hey, if you're gonna introduce a brand new topic and you want an active discussion when you introduce it on Friday at the team meeting, you need to send out information on Tuesday so that they show up prepared. So if you have people on your team that take time to think things through, those meetings on Zoom are going to be a lot less productive because they're just going to go, hmm, those are the ones that you have the meeting on Friday and they email you Tuesday. I thought about what you said, and let's try this, and the decision might have already been made. So now that person feels like, well, I'm not being heard. It's not exactly true. It's a time thing. It's a duration thing because they take time to think things through. So 
that's some of the challenges you have on a team of different people. Um, so if you hire a bunch of clones, that's great. Zoom can work great, but you may need to have office space because that's when you can look in someone's eyes and go, Sarah, you're struggling with this. What's going on? What do you think? And it invites discussion that way. So it depends on your company and how you're set up. I, I, Ami, if I remember correctly, your people deal with a variety of customers at very stressful times in their lives. So, you know, that might be something that calls for in-person. And, and you as the boss, I don't know if you coach your people on, you know, hey, what's going on with so-and-so? And then they tell you and you hear about it. You can do that over the phone, but sometimes, you know, if someone's sitting in front of you and there's a lot of angst going on, that's hard to get over the camera, you know? Because if, if I'm wringing my hands right now, you can't see that. But if I'm sitting in front of you, I'm, you can see like, wow, Dave's really uncomfortable right now. What's going on there? So I think some of that stuff can be lost. It just, just I think it depends on your business and your business model. Here, here's what I think, and I could be wrong. I think that, I know a lot of people have just decided to shut down their offices. They're like, why, why don't I have to spend this money anymore? I think it's gonna be a little bit like the internet came out and said, people are shutting down retail, retail's dead. Retail changed, but it didn't die. And so yeah. I think at some point there's, I mean, our, we, we figured out, here's how I thought about it at least, we figured out how to work virtually and it had pros and cons. We've added some virtual team members that we would have never had it before, they're gonna stay. But I still think the idea of a central place where people can come where they want to and share ideas and collaborate, be in person, uh, is very helpful, so. Yeah, and I think having the flexibility to offer that is key because I, I, there will be some people who don't want to and they'll and so when you have that team meeting whether it's once a week once a month once a quarter they're gonna be like oh i gotta go into the office so you'll have some of that uh but there'll be other people who are like oh i can't wait to see everybody and bounce those ideas so i think you being flexible having the ability to do in person having the ability to do just virtual i think i'm guessing i think a lot of employees and a lot of clients might enjoy that because they have the option it's like, hey, it's up to you. Now, obviously, we can't do much now with the way things are, but I'm hoping by summertime we can start offering that option of, hey, yeah, you want to do this? Do you want to do that session and want me to come to your office and do it or do you want to do it virtually? And I have a feeling, like I know two of our clients that as soon as the world opens up, they're going to have us out in person because they love it. I have a few others that we've converted because they're like, yeah, virtual is cool because nobody has to drive in so they're not off their desk for two hours. Uh, it's a 90-minute thing. So some people don't come because they're just like, Ugh, I have to drive two hours for a 90-minute thing. Well, that's dumb. So virtual is kind of cool because they log on, they did it, log off, back to work. And I think, so I think offering that flexibility is a good thing. Awesome. Dave, we're going to wrap up. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom with our listeners. We appreciate it. And let's all hope for a good, productive, healthy, and fruitful 2021. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Say hi to Christine, okay? I will. <laughs> All right. Send love. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today on AMI Sites with your host, AMI Kassar, the foremost SBA thought leader. Make sure you visit us at multifunding.com where you can meet our advisory team and learn more about how we help entrepreneurs fund their future.